next talk by uh, Paul Boberding on a topic that is, um, I think, a very important for anybody who is actually dealing with HIV-infected patients, and that is the whole question of disability in HIV-infected patients. Thanks, John. Um, so during the, uh, during the lunch break, a couple of my friends from Rush uh, made the point that we're starting to really feel the effects of the economy in HIV care and raising the question is, are we moving towards a two-tier system of, of HIV care where uh, ADAP is more restricted, where Ryan White is more restricted overall? Um, and I don't have a great thought except that we're all very concerned about, uh, about what's happening, especially as Medicaid becomes such a target uh, for budget reductions and so many of our patients rely on that. Um, but it, I thought it was a good question and one that relates at least tangentially to the, to the topic of, of this brief talk. Um, I start with two cases. They're not, they're not in your uh, handouts. They're not on the computer, but case one is a man uh, who's on antiretrovirals. He's doing great. Um, CD4 is 500. Um, he's hale and hearty, uh, but hasn't worked in several years. Mostly kind of doesn't feel that motivated to work. Um, is he disabled? Uh, he's had PCP in the remote past, but he's fine now. The second case is a person who is just diagnosed has CD4 of 24, feels terrible, um, and can't work, um, but would actually enjoy working if he could. Um, and the question is, is he disabled? Um, and as I'll show you in my talk, the first person is disabled, um, according to the rules. The second person isn't, uh, because the rules now require uh, that you have an OI diagnosis uh, before you're presumptively disabled, according to SSA. Um, so we'll talk uh, a little bit um, about that. Um, so we'll, we'll dig into this topic. So why is uh, Social Security disability important uh, for pa pa people with HIV infection? And I know you dealt with this, if only in signing the forms that come across your desk, maybe without giving it really more than a passing uh, thought. And chances are in your practice, maybe somebody is really doing most of that paperwork for you, but it's happening uh, uh, between you and your patients. Well, SSA, disability, um, yields a monthly benefit of 600 to $1,000. It's not a lot, uh, but for a lot of our patients, obviously, that can make a, a huge difference. Uh, in addition, uh, being uh, SSA disabled in many states allows a person entree into uh, important services such as housing um, and, other, and other support, and very importantly, Medicare and Medicaid benefits. So it's, it's, for many of our patients, it's much more important than the money that they get directly uh, because of the access to other services. The criteria that SSA developed uh, for, for determining uh, HIV disability uh, were begun in 1983 following the Supreme Court ruling that uh, Americans with Disabilities Act revised after the 1987 CDC, the clinical definition of AIDS, and I'll talk more about these listings. Uh, the HIV listings uh, were developed in 1993 and haven't been changed since. 
Uh, so remember that. We'll get back to it. And then very quickly, there are two different systems within uh, SSA uh, for uh, receiving benefits. One is uh, Social Security Disability Insurance. Um, that's for people who have been employed and who have paid uh, uh, Social Security taxes. But there's another uh, program, the Supplemental Security Income, SSI. Uh, this is uh, regardless of your work history. It's for people with uh, very low income uh, and, and very limited resources. Individuals can sometimes qualify for both. So how did I get involved in this? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you about a committee that I chaired um, that, that reviewed all this. But I learned a lot in the process, and what I learned about the process of disability determinations, and this actually applies to all of your patients, whether they have HIV or not. So it's worth at least knowing this one slide, and it's in your, it's in your handout. Um, there's a five-step process. So the person uh, applies to the, to the SSA office, and it's kind of an interesting system because uh, uh, the offices are at the state level but the money that supports it is federal money. So this is an example of the Fed money coming in, and yet the process is all state by state, um, and, it's, um, and there's some variation from, uh, from state to state. So the first question is, is the person working in it earning money? If yes, then no disability. You can't apply for disability if you're working and earning money. And almost any amount of money will uh, make you uh, not uh, uh, eligible for disability. Does the person have a condition that limits the ability to work? Um, if yes, then the process can go on, but it doesn't automatically determine disability. And actually the only part of this process that determines disability quickly is the third step. Um, does the person have conditions that meet the def definitions of listing of disability in what's called the listings? And I meant to bring it with me. The listings uh, is a blue paperback book, kind of eight and a half by 11. Uh, it's about as thick as the, I don't know, the Rockford telephone book. It's not as big as the Chicago telephone book. Um, and so the disability examiners in the state offices who never see patients, they're, they're people working at their desks. Some of them are docs. Some of them are nurses. Most of them not. Uh, they're trained to do this, and they review the records. And the first thing they do is they look in the listings, and they see if the person has a condition that's, recorded in the listings. And if they are, then advanced to go. They, they are what is called allowed for disability. So the easiest, cheapest, quickest way for a person to become disabled uh, is to meet the listings. And, the, and they also talk about this as the blue book. It's got a blue cover. If you don't do that, then the process gets really complicated, really expensive, and really long. Because then you have to go have, have various examinations, you might have to appeal, you go to administrative law judges, there are rulings, it can take years. So by far the quickest way is to meet the listings, and Social Security really wants to use the listings because it saves them time and money. Uh, so what I found in this process is that they're not, they're not trying to be a barrier, they're actually trying to give disability for people that deserve it, as long as they can show that they've met this, uh, met this definition. So why are the listings so important? Again, I've, I've already uh, said this. Uh, granting an allowance, that's what it's called, if you get approval for disability, uh, is very fast and expensive. The rest of the process takes a long time. And 
when, when, uh, when you ask people, well, how do you think disability should be determined? It's clear that somebody who has 500 CD4s, just because he had PCP, if he's doing very well, um, isn't necessarily disabled. People say, well, it should be by their ability to work. The trouble is it's really hard to, to define uh, functional capacity. It's really hard. There are no standardized exams. Uh, and if you say, well, we'll put the patient, you know, through the paces or something, have him go into an office, and uh, that can be gamed so easily by people who might want disability who can actually pretend to be uh, more disabled than they are. So it's, it's really a tough, uh, a tough situation. The listings for HIV were last revised before antiretroviral therapy got potent. They were last revised in 1993, and as I said, the main way you meet the listings uh, is having an, an HIV, an AIDS-defining opportunistic infection or these other uh, horrible things that we don't see anymore, the wasting syndrome with intractable diarrhea and the rest. Uh, so they're clearly uh, obsolete. There's no mention, I've read them word for word, there's no mention at all of viral load or CD4 uh, in the current listings. So the way disability is determined is crazy. Over time, um, the number of allowances uh, based on the listings has declined, obviously, as people um, uh, have done better. On the other hand, there's still quite a few people, 25,000 in 2009, it's the last year that we have data, uh, that were allowed. Um, and the allowance rate has fallen from 40 to 30 percent, and again, the SSA would rather that go up, because the higher the fraction of people that are disabled by the listings saves them time, uh, time and money. Um, and then this is some, some more details that I won't go into. So again, why did I get interested? The, I was invited to be on a committee by the Institute of Medicine. The Institute of Medicine is part of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, and basically, it's an NGO whose only client is the federal government. So any agency of the federal government that has a question about how it's doing in terms of its health-related activities uh, can request a review by the Institute of Medicine. The Institute of Medicine then puts a committee together uh, and, and renders an independent report to them. Uh, so you've all heard the, uh, to err as human, the, the, the IOM report on medical mistakes. That was commissioned by uh, HHS. Uh, the IOM reviewed the CDC's work in HIV prevention uh, a few years ago. So this case uh, was uh, uh, commissioned by the SSA to, to uh, tell it how it should improve uh, the HIV listings. Um, and so this was the charge to the committee. And here was the committee, and I got interested because I was asked to chair the committee. Uh, but you'll notice uh, some familiar names uh, on this. This includes physicians, nurses, patient uh, advocates, um, and, and people really very involved in this in the in disability process. Larry Gant is a, a, um, a social worker at the University of Michigan, uh, as an example. So this group uh, got together. Uh, we, it was a 12-month review of this process. We had face-to-face -face meetings, etc. Um, and it was then written and heavily reviewed, so we were pretty happy with, what, with the light that we thought we shed on this, uh, on this issue. And what did we find? Uh, we said the current uh, disability criteria um, don't work. Um, they don't really reflect the fact that HIV has become a, a chronic manageable disease. Um, and we said it's really hard. Uh, there's almost no literature that really that you can turn to and really says this person is disabled uh, from uh, from HIV. We all know it when we see it, 
but there's not really a, an, an easy definition. So what we recommended, um, and this is sort of a heads up because the SSA is now in its very slow process considering implementing these recommendations, so, so uh, stay tuned. We said the, the most important recommendation was that rather than using an AIDS-defining OI, uh, we said uh, the SSA should consider a CD4 threshold, for example, below 50, uh, as, as uh, evidence of disability. Um, and, you know, you could argue with that as well, but at least uh, a CD4 below 50 is associated with a higher mortality uh, in the in fairly short-term higher mortality rate. We looked at the max data, of course. Um, and it's also associated, as we heard this morning, with a, with a higher likelihood of not responding adequately to antiretroviral therapy. So we thought it, it met our definition of a bad thing uh, that's present in every medical record that, uh, of everyone that applies. No one is applying that doesn't have a CD4 uh, in the medical record. And then we also said that there are some conditions that are really, really bad, um, things that are still seen occasionally in HIV uh, that are basically imminently fatal uh, and that the SSA should just grant permanent disability for these people. For the CD4 of 50, we, we recommended that they kind of relook after a few years to see what was happening. But for HIV-associated dementia, the real dementia, Castleman's disease, uh, pulmonary capacities, and, and these other conditions that you see listed, uh, we said these are still really bad. These are, these are almost always fatal in the, in the very short term and they should be almost given presumptive disability the way somebody is now for ALS, for example. And I don't have all the recommendations. I'll have a link in the back of your um, notes for, uh, for a place to find them. But the fourth one was that we said there are comorbidities uh, that aren't reflected elsewhere in the, in the listing. So it's not like you can, you can look up... Um, uh, HIV uh, or, or regular capacities or lipoatrophy. We thought these were um, sufficiently uh, notable that when combined with chronic symptoms, we thought that these two should be uh, given uh, the status of disability. And then we found that there were a number of conditions where there are other listings. So there's a listing for cardiovascular disease, for example. We didn't think that HIV needed another one. I think as Wendy has pointed out, um, Cardiovascular disease in HIV is cardiovascular disease, and so as long as you have a definition somewhere else, we thought that those would be, uh, those would be adequate. And the same thing for chronic kidney disease, diabetes, hepatitis, and other cancers. Um, the conclusions basically that we, that we, uh, that we uh, summarized was that um, it's a complicated illness and it has to have a complicated treatment, um, which can make people, um, which can be a real problem. Um, and and the, the combination of the illness and the treatment can, can really be uh, a cause for disability for people living with HIV. Uh, we said that disability could be due to illness uh, or from comorbid conditions, and that we obviously recommended that the uh, listings be brought up to date. And this is a, a summary from another uh, from a New York uh, advocacy organization uh, summarizing our conclusions, again saying, uh, that there's no specific test to measure function, uh, but again, that some of these other conditions are, are worth noting. Um, you can get more information about the report. You can download the report uh, from the IOM website, and you have a, you have a, a link to that. And I think the, the main uh, message here and, and why I really wanted to 
do a quick summary of this uh, for this program is again to make you better aware of what your responsibilities are and how much you can help your patient. Uh, if you have a patient who's not working, not able to work, who has HIV, uh, if you know some of the, what the listings say, and, and, and they're only a couple pages long, um, the, the, the way you put your note to the SSA together can really almost guarantee that your, person, that your patient gets, uh, gets in a disability allowance. So if that's appropriate, then, then uh, look at the current listings as outdated as they are uh, to help your patient get, um, uh, uh, get access to, the, to these services. The other thing I learned, uh, another thing I learned was that at the local offices, so all the committee members went to our local offices and spent a day talking to the examiners. The examiner for Northern California is in Oakland. I'm from San Francisco, so I went over to Oakland. Uh, the people there, uh, again, they've never seen a person with HIV. That's, they just look at their computers. Uh, but they knew the names of all the nurse practitioners in the clinic at San Francisco General Hospital uh, that used to work with me uh, when I was at that hospital. Uh, they know the, the providers and they have reputations uh, by the quality of the information they provide. And they say, oh, so-and-so is awful because all of her notes say patient doing well, patient great, patient doing well, time after time, and then suddenly there's a claim for full disability. And they say, you know, you need to help us just a little bit in this process. So I think maybe the most important thing is when you go back to your practices, if you're not the ones that are really very directly involved in, in this process, talk to your social workers or other people in your, in your office who are, because there's a, there's a lot that you can do, and it doesn't take a lot of work uh, to make it uh, go much better than it, uh, than it is. So, uh, and then my last uh, bullet point here, the, the system really isn't adversarial. The, the, I was very impressed by the professionalism of the, of the examiners. They really want to give disability when it's appropriate, um, but they get uh, really stymied by uh, the lack of, uh, of clinical records, you know, where people, where docs just never get around to responding to the request for more information. So um, it's not a great system, but it's a really important one for your patients, and, uh, and I hope you go back a little bit better uh, prepared to help your patients. Thank you. And I'm not sure that we really need questions on this process. So the, the, John asked about the timeline for the revisions. It's, it can take really literally years. It, there's a long process of... Yeah, well, they haven't changed. Our recommendations came out about a year ago. The SSA hasn't done anything yet. Uh, but it takes years for, even if they want to make revisions, for them to happen. So it's hang in there. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, what about patients applying for disability under mental health diagnosis? Uh, there's a, there is a listing for, uh, for mental health. Um, it, too, is out of date, but, um, but that's the situation where probably a person with HIV, um, if he or she qualifies under uh, those other listings, that you'd apply. Uh, and you don't have to do this. The disability examiner will kind of look at the patient's record and decide kind of which listings might apply. Um, there's another whole complicated process where uh, the person might not meet the listing, uh, but the examiner might conclude that the patient has a condition that equals the listing. Um, again, there's, there are le many layers of complexity in, in the process. Um, 
So uh, how do you take a patient out of disability? Um, and we're all tempted, aren't we? Um, it, you, basically, you can't, and I think that the SSA more or less appreciates that it's not a perfect process and it, it won't be, and that there are people who are, are, are given allowances who probably shouldn't have gotten them uh, or who got them at the time, but it's really hard for them to go to have a system where they regularly go back and re-review cases. They can't keep up with the demand uh, pretty much as it is. Uh, so in general, there's their willingness to close their eyes to, to those cases. Um, I don't think it would help your relationship with your patient to uh, <laughs> go to SSI and give them a call. But so, um, so could I elaborate on lipodystrophy as a disabling condition? So th this uh, was discussed by our committee, and, and we thought, um, you know, and if you've had patients, and you do, I'm sure, who really have disabling uh, uh, features that really mark them, stigmatize them, and make it difficult for them to gain employment uh, because of the lipoatrophy in particular, um, that that was worth at least uh, considering for, uh, for disability. And I, I've had a couple patients who have such severe lipoatrophy on their heel pads that they literally have trouble walking. So I think there are some conditions associated with it that aren't just cosmetic uh, that really represent a, a job-limiting um, uh, problem. So. I think I'll stop there. Thank you.